0: Now, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California presents... Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you the distinguished actor, Mr. Ronald Coleman, in one of the great suspense stories of our time, August Heath. Suspense is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live, to your happiness and entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Before we bring you Ronald Coleman and our suspense play, here's a brief message from Elsa Maxwell, famed for her great charm as a hostess.
1: When food looks appetizing, It almost always lives up to expectations. When even so simple a main dish as a steaming fragrant bowl of spaghetti or beans is surrounded by bright green salads, golden rolls or muffins, and brilliant Roma California Burgundy, the food is more enjoyable, more delightful.
0: And for a summery touch of the outdoors, a vase of flowers. Perfect color complement to the deep, rich beauty of Roma Burgundy. You'll enjoy the fruity, robust taste. The tart piquancy of distinguished Roma Burgundy served cool. Truly a masterpiece of fine winemaking. Like all Roma wines, Roma Burgundy is unvaryingly good, always high in quality of bouquet, color, and taste. The happy reward of selected grapes, brought slowly to perfection, gently pressed, then carefully guided to flavorfulness by the ancient skill of Roma's noted wineries in California's choicest vineyards. Yet all this goodness is yours for only pennies a glass. Remember, more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wine. R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Yes, right now a glass full would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you a remarkable tale of suspense. And with August heat, W.F. Harvey's matchless narrative of premonition and the brooding terror of twilight and the unseen, and with the performance of Ronald Coleman, Roma Wines hope indeed to keep you in suspense.
2: 1945. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life. And while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. You must remember that in order to have the full implication of my story. James Clarence Withencroft. I'm 40 years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one, but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that there is no one in particular to whom I address this manuscript. Only you, who might by chance read it someday. For because of the peculiar circumstance about which you will soon hear, I have the strong premonition that I shall never live to tell anyone about it. I breakfasted this morning at nine at the usual time. It was no different from any other morning. And after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe. And I proceeded to let my mind wander, in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room, though door and window were open, was oppressively hot. And I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath, When, when I was suddenly shaken, a feeling swept over me such as I'd never experienced before. I attempted to rise to my feet, but somehow it seemed as though I had suddenly been fastened to my chair. My hand went out in an effort to brace myself. And then, before I knew what I was doing, my pencil was in my hand and I began to draw. It was as though someone had taken my hand and was moving it across the paper, swiftly, in bold strokes. And then I seemed to take over. My hand, under its own power, began to draw. I soon forgot the oppressive heat. Everything was forgotten in this frantic feeling that the sketch must be finished as soon as possible. I had no idea how long I worked until I heard the clock of St. Jude's in the distance. It was four o'clock, and I had started just after breakfast. Now, for the first time since I'd begun, I actually seemed to see what I had been sketching. I was surprised. The final result was I felt sure the best thing I'd ever done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat. The flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It creased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven, or perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven. And he was almost bald. He stood there before the judge, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed... It was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. And then... And then I saw that the sketch wasn't complete, for the man's other hand seemed to be clutching an instrument of some kind, a weapon, but, but it hadn't been completed. I had made this sketch, and yet I had no recollection of what I'd intended the man to carry in his other hand i took up my pencil again and i attempted to fill in the fuzzy outline but but it was useless it was as though my fingers had suddenly turned to lead i sat down and i felt the moisture slowly forming on my forehead and once again i was conscious of the oppressive heat then i knew that there would be no finishing of the sketch at any rate not for the moment so i rolled it up and without quite knowing why, I put it in my pocket. In spite of my peculiar inspiration, I was filled with a rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street i turning to the right along Gilchrist Road, at the bottom of the hill where the men are at work on the new tram line. From there onwards I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went, through parks, along crowded streets, always conscious of the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement in a suffocating wave. I remember, too, the hollow sound of my footsteps as I moved along. Although walking aimlessly, I somehow knew that there was a goal, a something to which I was drawn. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-coloured clouds that hung low over the western sky. I've really no idea how far I walked when a small boy roused me from my abstraction. You got the time, mister? Uh, Twenty minutes to seven. Thanks.
0: Thanks. Not enough for you, sir?
2: Yes. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth. There were flowers, purple stock and scarlet geranium and great numbers of bees droned over them. I stood looking down at them for a moment and then, for some reason, I looked up. Over the entrance to the place there was a board with the inscription Charles Atkinson, Monumental Mason, worker in English and Italian marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter, and I went in, in, in the direction of the noise. There was a man, sitting with his back towards me. He was busy at work on a slab of curiously paint marble. Then, without turning, his hammer stopped in mid-air. As he was about to bring it down on his chisel. He held his position a moment before turning, but I knew that he was aware of my presence. And when he turned, I saw his face. It was, although I'd never seen him before, it was the face of the man I had been drawing. Yes, it was the face of the man whose sketch was in my pocket. He sat there on his low stool, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, not speaking. Then he took a red silk handkerchief and he mopped his brow. Although this face that looked up at me was the same as my sketch, the expression was absolutely different. Suddenly the puzzled expression left his face, and he smiled, as if we were old friends. And he walked over and he took my hand. Good day, sir. Good day. I am sorry to intrude. Not at all. Everything is so hot and glary outside. This this is like an oasis in the wilderness.
3: (laughs) i don't know about an oasis but it certainly is hot take a seat sir
2: he pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work and i sat down very hot Uh, that's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of. in a way it is the surface here is as
3: fine as anything you could wish but there's a big floor at the back though i don't expect you'd notice it oh i shouldn't think so could never really do a good job at a bit of marble like that. It would uh, be all right in the summer like this. Wouldn't mind the blasted heat. But wait until the winter comes. Winter? Uh, There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Oh. Uh, a gravestone, you see. Oh, I see. Hmm. Then what's this one for? <laughs> I, you'd hardly believe if I was to tell you, but it's for exhibition. It's the truth... Artists have an exhibition, so do grocers and butchers. Oh We have them too. All the latest
2: little things in Edstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort of marble best withstood wind and rain, and which were easiest to work. Then of his garden and some new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute he would drop his tools, wipe his shining head, This heat, this heat's bad. A man's not responsible for what he does, this heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny in all of this. The feeling that I'd experienced it all before. The oppressive heat, the fragrance of the stocks in the air, the conversation about the marble, the flowers, everything as though I I had experienced it before. And yet I knew that I'd never, ever been in this section of town before. I tried to persuade myself that at least I'd seen him before. That his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory. But I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. As I sat there quietly, watching him, he looked up at me and he said, (sighs) There, what do you think of that? He said it with an air of evident pride, of a job well done. I could sense that he was experiencing the same feeling I had experienced when I'd finished my sketch. Then he got up with a sigh of relief. Mm. Uh, hot. Hot, ain't it? I was seated mm. in such a position that I was unable to see his work. And for some reason, I didn't move. Suddenly, he began to read what he'd carved on the tombstone. He spoke deliberately and with a flat voice.
3: In the midst of life, we are in death. Born January 18, 1905.
2: I looked up at the start. This man had read my exact birth date. (laughs)
3: He passed away very suddenly on August 20th, 1945. That's today. We usually use the present date on these
2: exhibition stones. Do you... Do you usually put a name on them too? Uh, Yes,
3: yes. uh, Sacred to the memory of... James Clarence Withamcroft
2: A cold shudder swept over me, and I sat there in silence. The sound of birds and crickets seemed loud in my ears as we stood there looking at each other, saying nothing. And then he mopped his brow again. Hot. Hot. I was finally able to speak. Where where did you see that name? Hmm? Oh, I didn't see it anywhere. I wanted some name and
3: I put down the first that came into my head.
2: It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. Huh? That's... Your name? You're James uh, Clarence? uh... Withencroft, yes.
3: Well. And uh, the dates?
2: I can only answer for the birth date. It's correct. Oh. That's a rum, girl. I made a sketch this morning, of you. Uh, of me? But you've never seen me before. No. Oh. Oh. I took my sketch from my pocket and I showed it to him. As he looked, the expression on his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man I had drawn.
3: And it was only the other day before that I told Mariah there were no such
2: things as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. Then I spoke to him. You... You probably heard my name someplace. Yes.
3: You must have seen me somewhere and forgotten it. Yes, yes. Were you at uh, Clacton-on-Sea last uh, July?
2: No. No, I've never been to Clacton in my life. Oh, and we were silent for some time again and we stood there looking at one another and at the two dates on the gravestone and the birth one was right and the other was today well
3: come inside and have some supper
2: My wife was a strange little woman... who was pallid with the look of those who live their lives indoors. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist... and he informed her that I was staying to supper. I spoke, making some comment that I hoped I wouldn't be an intrusion... and she looked up at me and she said...
1: You have a pleasing voice, Mr. Withencroft, and you're welcome in my home. I'm sorry Charles has not brought you here before.
2: Very little was said during the meal. And after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she walked over to a cupboard and she took down a thin black book. And as she handed it to me, she spoke.
1: Would you read aloud, Mr. Withencroft?
2: Puzzles. I I looked down at the book which she'd opened and placed before me. It was a very tiny book. The Prophet, it was called. By an author unknown to me with a strange Eastern name. Khalil Gibran and my eyes fell across the page and suddenly I was reading aloud as she'd asked me to then Almitra spoke saying we would ask now of death and he said you would know the secret of death but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life The owl, whose night-bound eyes are blind unto the day, cannot unveil the mystery of light. If you would indeed behold the spirit of death, open your heart wide unto the body of life. For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. And like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate to eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd when he stands before the king whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor. Is the shepherd not joyful beneath his trembling, that he shall wear the mark of the king? yet is he not more mindful of his trembling. For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb and when the earth shall claim your limbs then shall you truly dance when i looked up mr atkinson had gone his wife stood before me, and as she took the book, she spoke. Thank you. Then I went outside, and I found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone and smoking. He looked up at me. Hot. Hot.
3: Man's not responsible for what he might do in this heat. Hmm. He never asked anyone to read aloud before.
2: And then we talked about the sketch again. He looked at it. Likeness is me, all right. On trial? Uh, you, you must excuse my asking, but... Uh, uh, do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial? No, I've done nothing.
3: <laughs> Not yet.
2: He got up. Fetched a can from the porch. And he began to water the flowers.
3: Twice a day regular in the hot weather. And then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And first, good
2: Lord, they could never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back home. And he stopped watering. And he faced me squarely.
3: It's like this. We'll look at the matter straight. If you both go back home tonight, you'd take your chance of accidents. A cart may run over you. There's always banana skins and orange peels... to say nothing of falling ladders.
2: He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness... that would have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh.
3: The best thing we can do is for you to stay here till 12 o'clock.
2: Then it'll be tomorrow, do you see?
3: Yes. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside.
2: And, to my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is, is busy sharpening some tools at a little oilstone smoking one of my cigars the while. And as I look at my sketch before me, I suddenly see the fuzzy outline of what the man in the picture holds in his hands. While I had not been able to sketch it before, I am able to do so now. It is a chisel. And it is stained with dark liquid. Ah, the sketch is completed now. The air seems charged with thunder. And I hear it in the distance. It is ominous, but... but it carries the hope of rain. And perhaps this damnable heat will... will be broken soon. And the day will soon be over. It is close to twelve. I'm writing this at a a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked. And Atkinson, who, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on his chisel. There, it is 12. The day is over. ...and I shall be... ...going home. But the heat... ...the heat... ...is stifling. This heat... ...is enough to... ...send a man mad.
0: So closes August Heat, in which Roma Wines have brought you Ronald Coleman... as star of tonight's study in... Suspense. Suspense is produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Music for August Heat was composed by Lucian Morrowick... and conducted by Ludd Gluskin. Dennis Hoy appeared as Atkinson. This is Truman Bradley with a word for Roma Wines, the sponsor of Suspense. America's famed authority on hospitality, Elsa Maxwell... ...recently made this suggestion for gracious entertainment.
1: Your friends will respect your good taste... ...when you serve delightful Roma California Toque. Enjoyable at any time. With coffee or dessert, with nuts and fruit. I suggest serving Roma Toque cool.
0: A most timely suggestion from Miss Maxwell. You'll find flame-bright Roma Toque velvety smooth... ...moderately sweet, light, yet delightfully rich in color... And you'll find Roma wines always delicious, of unvarying fine quality and goodness. June is the month of weddings. And the most distinguished way to fate the June bride is by serving Roma California Champagne. Its golden and sparkle and delicious, delightful dryness tell you that here is a truly fine champagne. Roma Champagne. Next time you plan for a special occasion, add this sparkling touch of perfection. Good Roma Champagne. Next Thursday, you will hear John Payne and Frank McHugh as stars of Suspense. (laughs) Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
4: Of suspense to the fear you can hear. Horror that makes the flesh crawl as with maggots, terror that turns the brain to jelly. These mark the work of Edgar Allan Poe. For nearly a century and a half, readers have wondered at the mad creations of his fevered brain, even as their blood ran cold with fear. As shall yours. Our mystery drama, The Fall of the House of Usher, was especially adapted from the Edgar Allan Poe classic for the Mystery Theater by George Lothar and stars Kevin McCarthy. I'll be back shortly with Act One. You that there lies ahead for you a tale so gruesome that when it ends, you will know beyond doubt that never in your life before have you experienced such revulsion. Are you prepared for this? Come then to a certain room where a man named Gabriel Mannering sits writing in his diary, a certain room in the house of Usher. I sit here writing this diary when in truth were I not a fool I should have already departed this frightful place. Already I have sent such horrors in these first hours of my visit that I I tremble at the thought of what may be in store for my friend, Roderick Usher. And for me. During the whole of this dull, dark autumn day I had passed on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country and at length found myself, as the shades of evening grew on, within a view of this bleak and melancholy house, the House of Usher. I felt at once an iciness, a sickening of my heart, and wondered what it was that so unnerved me. I was soon to find out...
1: You'd be Mr. Mannering, sir?
4: Yes. My master waits you. Oh, uh, one moment, this one way. moment, my horse. Oh, we'll be well cared for, sir. Mm. Oh, that carriage standing there. That black carriage? Is there another visitor? Only oh, the doctor. He is attending Miss Madeline. Uh, this way, sir. Thank you. Follow me now, sir. Mm. Oh. We turn here, the passage on our left.
2: Hmm.
4: Now this to the right. I had no idea the house of Usher was so vast. Ah, yes, vast. Above and below. Below? There are chambers underground, vaults, dungeons that even I have never seen, and I have lived here as servant to Mr. Usher more than 30 years. Here we are, sir. Come. Mr. Gabriel Mannering, sir. Oh, Gabriel. Mm. My dear good friend, you've come. You've come at last. Roderick, I came immediately on receipt of your letter. It gave me cause for concern. Deep concern, after all, Roderick. Not having seen each other in years, nor corresponded even, to receive a letter from you was in itself a surprise, but the contents, Roderick. The contents were a shock. How ill are you? Ill? I'm not ill? Not ill? But in your letter... I
1: am not ill! Oh,
4: oh I, I, I may have mentioned something of a sort in my but More than mentioned, you spoke of acute bodily illness, of oppressive mental disorder, of a malady, a malady, dear friend, so strange you could not bear to face it alone. Now, that is why I'm here. That is why I came at once. The terrible agitation in your letter. Oh, mood, mood, mood. It was nothing but mood. Mood of the moment. Nothing more, nothing more. Come now. Uh, Oh, Cato, the port. Good, good, good. Thank you, thank you. I'll pour. I'll pour. And, oh, uh, Cato. Sir? Dr. Windham is with my sister still. Yes, sir. I would speak with him before he takes his leave if he feels I can bear to... Sir? Nothing. Nothing. Just, just say I wish to see him. Yes, sir. There. The vintage Port Gabriel. You'll enjoy it. It's, it's aroma, it's fragrant bouquet will delight your nostrils. It's taste will fall sweet on your tongue. Your, your health, good friend. And yours, Roderick. Now, tell me about hmm. yourself, Gabriel. How has life gone with you all these years? Oh, as all lives go, I suppose, has been the good, the bad, the indifferent. Yes, well, mine has been mostly bad. I've prospered my importing business in Baton Rouge. Ruination, that's been my lot, my fate. The fate of the House of Usher. Well, if, if you are financially in need... No, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. I... I... I speak of another kind of ruination. Decadence. I speak of the evil. The evil that molders within my body, my mind. My house. House? Oh, no. No house, this. A tomb. A tomb that houses the living dead. You are ill? Yes. Yes, I lied. I, I am ill with... What? With what? With... With fear. Fear? Of what? I do not. What do we all fear, each of us? What living thing has not known fear? It lives within us, this fear. It rots within us, as I rot within this house. But mark you, good friend, whereas with others, fear rides like a restless maggot only now and again with me. With me, it's ever-present. A colorless, Slime growing within me, spreading, engulfing, drowning me. Drowning Run. me. Roderick. Run, no, no, look. No. I'm all right now. I'm all right. You, you must go. Go? Well, you shouldn't have come. I shouldn't have asked you. You must leave this house, this house and death, this, 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 tomb. Stop that. Now stop. I tell you. The... Enough. Enough now. Here. Sit down. Compose yourself. Now hear me, Roderick. I came a great distance through the foulest time of the year to be with you. And here I shall stay until you are well again. You don't understand. I shall never get well. Of course you will. No, no. No, she is dying, you see. And I... I Your sister... It is it she who is dying?
1: Yes, yes madam.
4: But it's she who is dying. If it is. No, no,
1: you don't
4: understand. You don't understand. Uh, come in. Dr. Wyndham. Ah. Come in, Doctor. Uh, thank you, Cato. May I introduce myself, Doctor? Mr. Usher, as you see, is not himself. I'm a friend of his, Gabriel Manning of Baton Rouge. No, How do you <laughs> know? Lewis Wyndham. I I entreat your pardon, both of you. Now, now, Roderick. My nerves, my nerves sometimes. Yes, yes, I know, and I'm sure Mr. Mannering understands. Uh, You've been taking the laudanum I prescribed. I I used the last only yesterday. Well, I'll see if you get more. Oh, thank
1: you, thank you. My sister?
4: Yes, no change. How long? How long? Before death. No, I don't know. Your sister's malady baffles me. I don't know what is killing her, nor do I know what keeps her alive, when in truth, she's all but dead. Oh, would it be an impertinence doctor for me to ask you what you mean by that? Well, no, no, Mr. I Quite simply, there have been times when Miss Usher and uh, Madeline has been devoid of all vital signs. By this, I mean I've been unable at these times to detect a pulse, blood pressure, any respiration whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yet, moments later, she's opened her eyes and returned to the world of the living. Strange, strange. Mm -hmm. I've encountered nothing like it in years of practice. It's not too far from the truth to say that she is dead, and yet she lives on. Yes, yes. Like the house itself. Now, Roderick, you mustn't hide it. Right you, we are like this house, my sister and I. We are this house. The house is us. The house is dead, and yet it stands. Your aberration about this house... It is no your... aberration! It's the truth. The house of Usher crumbles, yet it will not fall. Madeline is dead... She will not die. And as for me. Oh, heaven, the horror
1: that awaits me. I'll
4: send the laudanum as soon as possible, Mr. Mannering. There's little else I can do. Yes, I have other patients to attend. Ah, Thank heaven it's a moonlit night. I have many miles to travel. Good night. Good night. Roderick. Frederick yes, yes. Frederick, I want to help you. in every way I can that's why I'm here, but now you must do your part to help yourself. Well, what do you mean? Well, I could be wrong, but it, it seems to me you let yourself go to pieces all too easily. this this talk, this wild talk of your sister Madeline being dead and yet alive. Well now, that's nonsense. you know. No, no, no yes. well I well, I'll agree with you with one thing, one thing only. In a way, you have become this damnable house. No healthy, sane man could live here for long without beginning to lose his sanity, without serious damage to his nervous system. (sighs) I've never seen such gloom. Inside as well as out, this very room reeks of dejection, despondency, undusted cobweb furnishings, black drapes covering the window. Here. Let me throw them back and at least get some moonlight, if not sunlight, into this place. There. That's... Robert. What is it? There's a graveyard. I can see it in the moonlight. The family graveyard, yes. Who? Who would be walking in it at night? What do you say? Well, where do you see it? There. There. Amidst the headstones. Oh, Madeline, what is she doing out there? We'd better go and find out. Good lord. In the doorway. What is it? Uh,
1: Mirke! Am I that horrifying to look upon? Dear brother.
4: An usher walks among the headstones of the Usher graveyard, yet stands in the doorway at the same time. Does her spirit walk abroad? Is she that close to death? I'll be back shortly with Act Two. if you wish to go on and warn that if you do you will experience a kind of horror for which I can find no words. Even Gabriel Mannering writing in his diary found it difficult to express his feelings in that moment of first meeting with Madeline Usher. I seek and cannot find words to recreate the terror of that moment. Not a woman, but a corpse before us in the doorway of that awful room. The very woman, or corpse, if you will, that but an instant before, Roderick Usher and I had glimpsed in the moonlight graveyard beyond the window. If she is alive, I thought, she should be dead. Infantiously, I said. You are Madeleine Usher?
1: Yes.
4: How do you do? I'm Gabriel Mannering.
1: I know. You winced as you took my hand. What? You felt it. Coldness. No, 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 I, uh... uh... Yes, yes. You need not dissemble with me. Even now you find it hard not to stare at the dark patches on my face. The putrescence that lives. Yes. Yes, thrives in my dying flesh. Uh, Madeline,
4: my dearest sister, you should be lying down. Resting? You mustn't waste
1: your energy. I wanted to meet your friend. Someone from the world of life outside this house. This tomb. I wanted to... Need it. Uh-huh. Just falling. Catch her. No, I... Get... Get me.
4: Just put her on the couch, Gabriel. No, no. No, no, no. Better still, we'll... We'll carry her to her room. Ooh. No pulse. No heartbeat. Is she... Well, help me. It's it's impossible to say. Can you carry her alone? She weighs nothing. Follow me, then.
1: Oh, what evil stalks the house of Usher. Help us, dear Lord. Please help us.
4: Put her down, Gabriel. Gabriel? In what? Can that? It's her bed, a coffin. But nevertheless, it is her bed. It's where she rests and sleeps. And haven't you noticed what she's wearing? Isn't a nightdress, a shroud. Yes. She's been ready for her burial for nearly a year now. Oh Oh. look, look, see her eyes, her eyes are fluttering. I've taken my oath. She was
1: not yet, not yet.
4: Oh. Oh. Gabriel, my friend, come. Well, you don't leave her like this alone. No company to cheer her when she wakes. She may not wake him again today. She may not wake him again. Come? No. I don't wake. There's something, something about her. Something in her face that reminds me. Well, of course, it's It's you. Oh, you? You see, then. Hmm? The family resemblance. It's Obvious. In spite of what the intimacy of death has done to the face, the resemblance is still there. It's more than a resemblance, Gabriel. What do you mean? We are twins. As my friend spoke those words in that chamber of death, a curious change came into his face. It floats before me even now as I write a complexion gone so suddenly cadaverous, his eyes large, liquid and luminous beyond comparison, thin and pallid lips gone thinner, paler. For a moment, he seemed scarce human. I had tried to calm his fevered nerves by telling him it was his sister, not he, who was dying. And he had cried out, You don't understand! You don't understand! And now, in an instant I did understand, or At least the shadow of what he meant touched me, and I was filled with a dread, a loathing of what was to come that I cannot fully express. Had I known the full truth of what lay before us, my loathing would have increased a hundredfold, and I should have fled the house of Usher then and there, certainly. I should not have found myself at breakfast with Usher the following morning. Another helping, Mr. Mannering. No more, Cato.
1: Then I can give you the message.
4: A message from whom?
1: Miss Madeline. She wishes to
4: see you at your convenience. Well, then I'll go to her, of course. Now, why do you look at me like that? And now why do you turn away? Cato, face me. Look at me. What is it? Cato, is it the odor? Uh, yes, sir. You best not go, Gabriel. Or if you do, another time. No, I don't understand. The odor, the stench of putrefaction. It's stronger at times than at others. And you mean that she? Take me to Miss Madeline at once, Cato. No, no. It will sicken you, nauseate you, even infect. Well, it can kill me and be damned to it. But I'll not disregard a last wish of a dying woman. Unlike you, Roderick, I do not fear death. <laughs> to speak now no. uh, would you prefer I came back another time
1: oh, how good of you to come at all
4: it's a privilege to be of use to you a
1: favor <clears throat> I wish a favor
4: anything in my power
1: I want to die I'm in such pain and I want to die but I cannot cannot I'm... Oh, oh, I'm afraid. There's
4: nothing to fear. Death is only sleep. Dreamless sleep. No, don't fear that. I, I...
1: Don't. Fear. I... Fear. No. You fear what? Burial... Alive.
4: Why would you have such a fear? What makes you think you might be buried alive?
1: My... my mother... She, uh, oh, promise me. Uh, spare yourself. Spare
4: yourself. You need say no more. I promise. I promise you. That you will not be buried alive. Oh,
1: oh.
4: Rest, rest, now. rest. That is what you meant, Roderick. Is it not? Like her. Like your twin, you don't fear death so much as you fear being buried alone. You no, know, I... part of it. Yeah? Yes? Only part? Well, I fear... Oh, God, more than I can tell you. I, I... 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 I fear what happens in death. Another aberration. As with the house, so with this. You are a man given to aberration. And what of that? You make as little sense. It's Wyndham. Do you think because you call the thing a thing an aberration, it'll go away. That it will cure itself if you but name it. Reason. Common sense. Reason. Common sense. When well, you speak to me, to me and Usher, of reason and common sense, hmm? Do you not know of the madness that has tainted this family through its history? From the beginnings of the house of Usher, this house, this, this family... Until now, until Madeline and me, the last of the ushers, from beginning to end, from rise to. to fall. Roderick. Rise to fall. Roderick. From rise to fall. I, I had not thought on it before, but
1: that is what it will be when. when, when she and I are dead. It will
4: be the fall. The fall of the house of us. Um. Yes, Cato. The Lord, sir, from Dr. Wyndham. Oh, thank heaven. It has come none too soon. <laughs> Mr.
1: Mannery, Sir. Hmm? Oh, yes,
4: yes, Cato. You've been sitting here in the graveyard for nearly two hours. That long? Yes, sir. Tell me, Cato, how long have you been servant to Mr. Usher? More than 30 years, sir. But I, I thought I would told you that the night you arrived just a week ago. Did you? Now then I forgot. Were you here when the mother died? The mother of Mr. Roderick and Miss Madeline. Why do you ask such a question, Miss Madeline? I don't know. I don't know, really, except I've been dwelling on what Miss Madeline told me about her mother. Buried alive. Was she indeed? Sir, don't ask such questions. Don't dwell on such thoughts. Why not? It was discovered the mother had been buried alive. Yes. Tell me about it. Sir... I entreat you. Understand. You cannot stay in the house of Usher. No one can without something... I... I know not what, but something evil... taking possession of his mind, his spirit, his very soul. It will happen to you. It is happening to you. No.
1: You've been drawn here to this spot. You've been sitting here in the damp and chill for hours... because... You, too,
4: have taken the first step toward madness. How did they discover she'd been buried alive? Sir, I beg you, turn your thoughts away from... How? If you must hear it. A few weeks after she had been buried, the coffin placed in that vault you see under the trees, it was discovered that she had been buried wearing a valuable ring. A ring? It contained a stone worth a fortune. It had been... Tell me about it. She'd always worn it, and when the undertaker encoffined her, he neglected to remove it. He had no idea of its worth, or surely he'd have inquired whether the family wished her to wear it to the grave. Mm. And as you will understand, such was Miss Madeline's and Mr. Roderick's grief. They didn't think of the ring until weeks later. And decided to retrieve it? Yes. We went to the vault... The three of us. Slid back the slab that covers it and... uh, Sir, let us go in. Finish. Finish what you're telling me. Uh, There lay the coffin. The lid was in two parts. A lower part that covered her body from the waist down. An upper part from the waist up. This I pried up and... There... There... Go on. She lay face down. Her hands... Her hands... had torn chunks of hair out by the roots. Such was... the agony of terror. Hands, do I say? Claws. They had become rigid in the death Rose. Yes. Yes? We...
1: turned her over... Her face, I. Oh, my God, we will with Her face, I. I cannot describe. I. I, I cannot, I cannot. I. I. <laughs> Enough.
4: Enough, thank Oh. Ooh. The chill is getting to me. Oh, no, no! Ah! Henry!
1: Ah!
4: Quickly. Come. Ah! Heaven help us! What is that? There. Uh, coming toward us from the house. Roderick! Help me! What? Help me! What is it, ma'am? A corpse! A corpse! What? Madeline! Dead! She's dead at last! Dead, but, but... but... What? What is it? She tried to take me to the grave with her. She tried to drag me into her coffin. Oh, no, no, no. Roderick! Roderick, pull yourself together and tell us... I, I went to her chamber to see how she was. I called her name again and again and yes. again, and no answer. I felt for a pulse, none. I, I lay my head against her breast. No heartbeat. And then...
1: Oh God. Her arms were entwined around my neck. Her cold arms around my neck. And I tried.
4: I tried to break free, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I grabbed her wrists and I tore. I tore her arms from her. Sire, I've got him. Help me carry him inside. Ooh. Oh, no. i be calm, Cato. When Mr. Usher tore himself free, he must have dragged her half out of the coffin. We must put her back in. Cato. I dare not touch her. Very well. There. Is she... at last... dead? She seems so. Ride for the doctor. Tell him to come at once. Yes, sir.
1: Sir... You mean to stay here? Yes. But I will be gone at least two hours. If you, you change your mind,
4: grab the ring. Find your way back to the library in that maze of cargo. Now don't worry about it. I shall stay here. I made her. A... She'd not be buried alive, and I mean to keep that promise, Cato. Beginning now. Alone in that chamber of death. Within the house of Usher, Gabriel Mannering seats himself beside the coffin of Madeline Usher to keep his vigil and his promise. And wonders if he himself may not be going mad. I'll be back shortly with Act Three. To shatter the human mind, haunts the house of Usher, hangs like a shroud in the air, drips on the spirit, like the very slime upon the decaying walls. As Gabriel Mannering sits beside the coffin of Madeline Usher, he feels this terror seeping into him. Seeping into me like a rising tide of pollution. Cato said he would be gone two hours in fetching Dr. Wyndham, but to me it seemed like twenty before I heard his returning footsteps. You don't look well. I'm all right. Sir, you deceive yourself. Ah, never mind. I'm seeing Miss Usher. and beg, Cato. Thank you. Heart first. Mm-hmm. Is she? No, there's no heartbeat, none whatever. No pulse, no vital signs at all. She is gone, then. Hey, Mr. Mallory, I have attended her in this strange illness for nearly a year. I've seen her in this state four times before. What's to be done? <laughs> what, indeed. Well, I would wait a few days at least, and then, and then I should bury her. No. No, she feared to be buried alive. Yes, I know, her mother. You attended her? No, no, no. another man. From what I've been able to learn, I judge her illness was similar, just as unaccountable, as baffling. Well, Mr. Manoring, she did indeed fear the same fate her mother suffered, but I think that after, say, three or four days... I say no. At least. At least a week. No. No, two Even three. You don't know what you're saying. You can't keep a body for two or three weeks, especially hers. Why especially hers? Well, look at her, man. Here. See, under the skin of the cheeks, those gray patches. She's partially decomposed already. I gave her my word, doctor. I said we would make sure. There is an evil in this house. A sinister, malevolent thing that fastened itself on the Ushers years ago, and is beginning to fasten itself on you. Now, now, hear me out. I have not seen you in some days. The moment I came into this room, I saw it. I tell you, I saw it—the change in you, the sickening in you. The—I do not use this word lightly, Mister Myring the insanity in you. (laughs) You are right. I gave Madeline Usher my word she would not be buried alive and she will not be. Well, I see that I cannot dissuade you. Very well. Do as you wish. And may God help you. I stayed by her coffin for yet another hour or so, making sure there were no signs of life. Then I returned to the library, led there, of course, by Cato, for I, well, I could never have found my own way through that maze of corridors and passages. I found Roderick Usher seated, bolt upright in a wing chair, staring at I know not what. I... Roderick. Roderick, I must talk to you. Do you hear me? Yes. Now, Roderick, as I told you, I promised your sister to take every precaution against her being buried alive. She is dead. I know it in my heart, my soul. I know it. I believe so, too. But we must be certain. Now, that presents a problem. Roderick, are you listening? Problem? Yes. Decomposition. If she is dead, she will decompose. And after a period of days, well, if you could imagine... Days? Days of what? Of visiting her coffin. At least every 12 hours, say, to make sure she's dead. Are you mad? We must keep her body. One week, two. And the question is, where? Where? We'll have to leave the coffin open in case she should regain her senses. On the other hand, if... She is indeed dead. Well, there there, there, there are vaults deep down beneath the house. We could put the coffin in one of those. Good. Good. We'll do that then. Yes. We'll do just that. Together, Usher and I arrange for the temporary entombment of Madeline, his twin. The vault. So long unopened that our torches were half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission of life, lying at great depth beneath the house. There. There, Gabriel. It is done. We must come here again. In no more than 12 hours. As you say. As you say. Before he wished only to bury Madeline, for it become so compliant, agree so readily with what I said. Only I'd ask myself that question. But I did not, and consequence faced an unexpected problem. Why do you not believe me? It isn't I don't it. believe you, Roderick. I wish to see for myself. There is no need for you to do it. I have done it. You have? I have visited the coffin at least once every 12 hours, sometimes twice. She does not live my word for it. It is my word concerns me. I gave my word to her, not yours. She is dead. I assure you, she is (laughs) dead. It was about that time, the sounds began. Strange knockings, creaking, perhaps had begun before, but I had not at first. I would hear some curious sound from below and say to Roderick, what was that? What was what? Listen. (laughs) is that? Rats, perhaps. Rats? Well, the house is infested with them. Uh, I've never heard rats make sound like that. I answered. Oh. time went on. And it seemed to me the sounds grew louder, and I would say to rock, listen. And he would answer, a door banging in the wind somewhere. And I would say, there is no wind. He would answer, well, then something else don't bother me. And on that fatal night, that fatal night, as we sat in the library, he was sitting, staring vacantly, nothing, trying to read, but my mind was on that awful chamber of death far below. Him, outside, the wind gathering for a storm. It happened. I came aware of distinct, hollow, metallic, yet muffled reverberation. Complete unnerved, I ate to my feet and looked at Usher. His eyes were fixed before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. I said, "Roderick." Do you not hear it? Yes, I hear it and have heard it. As you have. Long, long, many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard. Yet I dared not. I dared not speak. No. No, touch me not. I am accursed. Accursed. For I heard this sounds as did you, but I dared not speak and dared not go. Not go? My God, are you telling me that not once, not once have I gone down to sea? I dare not. I did not. We put a living in the tomb. She comes. She comes. Uh, for me. Listen. Now listen. I know. We've heard the rending, a cough, and the grating, and iron hinges of a prison. Her struggles within the current archway of the vault. And now, now. She
1: comes. For me.
4: The moment she'll be here. I hear her footsteps, I hear the horrible beating of her heart. She comes for me. She comes. I tell you, she stands outside the door. And as if in the superhuman energy of his utterance, there had been found the potency of a spell, the huge antique pants to which he pointed drew slowly back. And outside those doors did stand towering and enshrouded figure. Of Madeline.
1: <laughs>
4: there was blood on her white robe, evidence of some bitter struggle on every portion of her putrefied frame. For an instant she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold, <laughs> and then with a
1: moaning cry
4: fell heavily in on her brother, <laughs> and in her violent, now final death agony,
1: <laughs> bore him to the floor.
4: victim to the terrors of all he had anticipated. This is E.G. Marshall. I shall return shortly. The manuscript of the fall of Rouse of Usher ends thus. I fled from the house, leaving all behind me. As I ran, I heard a sound so horrendous it made me stop and turn. My brain reeled as looking back, I saw the mighty walls of the house burst asunder. And in a few moments, the moon, breaking through scudding clouds, a blood red moon, revealed the end. The Usher. Our cast included Kevin McCarthy, Arnold Moss, Marion Sotis, and Robert Biden. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brock.